Well, Anton, thank you for joining us on uh, in our second season for the Detection Challenging Paradigms podcast. Um, I want to start off with kind of a, a def definition question because I find that uh, one of the things that I've become very interested in recently is um, this idea of defining the process that we follow. And a lot of times I like to think about the process uh, outside of the context of the technology that we have because I find that technology constrains us, uh, constrains the process that we use. And so I, I want to find what is the ideal process that we follow? And then we can think about how technology aids that, right? Um, and every time that I try to look into the process, I find a blog post that you've written that kind of talks about that to some degree, right? So it's like, who better to answer some of these questions than, than you? So the, uh, the first question that I, I kind of want to go towards is, how do you define the idea of detection and response? And then maybe how does it fit into the broader context of information security as, like a, as a whole? So... I'm going to punt response for now because to yeah. me, when I think about it, usually response is where there are a lot more clashes with definitions and people, uh, just a quick uh, example of it, like I've seen a lot of arguments when people argue between, say, investigation being the center of response and mitigation being an auxiliary. And I've met people who treat mitigation and fixing issues in, as, a, as a primary and then investigations an auxiliary. And then those people, if given beer, they would fight for hours over what's really response. Is it more investigation than remediation or is it more remediation supported by investigation? And that would be like a pretty much uh, a long and occasionally painful discussion. So I'd rather punt it for now and kind of talk about detection. Funny enough, when I was at Gartner, somebody asked me about detection versus hunting or detection versus like historical discovery. Mm -hmm. And I had to kind of process it in my brain, I guess, a little bit like, like, what do I think is detection? And to me, I stick to more narrow definition of detecting something that's going on now. To mm. me, if you detect something that happened, well, if you uncover something that happened three months ago, to me, this is not detection, even though I've, I've met well, uh, well-founded arguments from fairly intelligent people who would say that, oh, no, it's still detection, which is detected something that happened three months ago. I think that somewhat muddies the waters because then you ask those people, then what's hunting? And they say, mm. eh, and then they kind of like start arguing about some minor points. Yep. To me, detection is probably something that we detect, I guess, before, during that process. Oh, not before, sorry. During this process, while it's ongoing, so we have, we have a chance to do something about it perhaps, or at least cut the attacker before he goes to the next phase or something. So to me, detection is, and see, I'm also caref carefully avoiding the word real time. <laughs> I really don't want it to say like it's real time, but I think mm -hmm. something that's ongoing now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Real, real time. I carries know real time is kind of warm, so I'm not saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think real time is kind of subjective sometimes because it's like, well, how long does it yep. take for the data to get to your pipeline? And at that point, it's not really mm -hmm. defined as quote unquote real time. I want to go back to yep. what you said, cause I, I kind of like your, definition of detection it kind of sparked something in my head um detecting something that's going on now versus something that was three months ago i think maybe what might lead us into defining what the difference between that and maybe hunting is is what was the process that brought us to the here and now and detecting or finding whatever was found did an alert fire and say hey x is happening or mm -hmm. was some type of process kicked off like say a hunting campaign where now we're looking at our environment and now we found that three months ago why happened right and so mm -hmm. i think that is where like the difference is yeah I, I would agree like 
if you found something that was three months ago, I probably wouldn't define that as detection because in my head, detection comes from after going through like the research and the alerting phase, mm-hmm. we have something set up in the environment that says, ding, 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 hey, this happened. N- not, I am manually looking for this and I found it. Right. I think, I think th- that is where in my head it separates. Right. But then if you, if you run an automated query that, say, takes today's Intel, matches it to logs of a month ago, and then today new Intel comes in and the query matches, did we detect something using today's Intel and, you know, logs from May 13th? Like, that's where it becomes tricky. And again, I deal with it a bit of an, uh, during my day job at Chronicle where uh, these things actually happen when uh, uh, fresh Intel matched stale logs. And is this detection? Oh, I would not say it's hunting for sure, because hunting, this like really cheapens and kind of devalues the discussion of hunting. So it's not hunting, got it. But is it detection? Then it's kind of falls into the little chasm. If it's historical, but automated, then what is it? Yeah, it's almost like uh, the def. So there is value in the nuance of the different definitions Mm -hmm. of like uncovering, hunting or detection. Um, But it really is, how does that align with the processes? If you have to follow a separate process, then it's almost like maybe that should be defined differently. So mm-hmm. it's you kind of like, and like ideally we would all have like a common set of language that we would use to be able to say, when I say detection, you know what I mean, right? But at yep. least within your organization where you control the definitions, it's it's valuable to uh, have distinct words that mean distinct things that f- are representative of a process of some sort. Yeah, I, Yes, I, that's fair. Yeah, yeah I fair. think too to that is whenever we just created a detection and we're looking at the new Intel and we then look back at a set of data that was there and this mm-hmm. identifies to me, again, I don't think that's hunting. I don't think that's detection. I think it's more of identification because now we have more Intel around that, that type of data and what's supposed to be there. I mean, I've written mm-hmm. detections for clients before where it was kicked off. We look back and we're like, Hey, this looks kind of weird. Let's escalate yep. this. And now let's go like launch, whatever, like an investigation or hunting community, whatever they had available mm-hmm. to them to go look into that. I wouldn't call that one piece detection though, because yep. there is a part of detection where we do have to take the logic that we just wrote and search our environment for it to A, make sure like the tests that we ran to um, make sure that that's in the environment is there, but also see, okay, now that we have this detection coverage, because that's a whole nother topic, detection coverage mm-hmm. versus like telemetry coverage, is like now that we have this detection coverage, mm-hmm. Let's see what was available to us to so far back data that we have available to us. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I played with trying to use it something like discovery, like you said, identification, because I think identification focuses on I have a record of activity, but now I can identify this activity as malicious. So this is why this is how I would think why you said identification. But to me, I kind of had a record of activities, but they were not discovered by me as meaningful. So you say identification for this type of historical journey to the past. And I would think attack discovery or intrusion discovery. But to me, this is very much semantics. But I guess we are discussing words. So yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is kind of the point. But still, it's a useful practice, which I've seen some people do not engage in. They sort of assume it's either manual with a shovel, hunting. I guess you don't hunt with a shovel, but I guess my metaphors suck. You could, uh, I guess. Or yeah. it's detection that means real time. <laughs> And then there's nothing in between. And I'm like, wait a second. No. What if it's automated and historical? And they're like, uh, we don't yeah. have a word for it. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, I just released a blog post today that's talking about what I view identification to mean specifically within mm-hmm. the context of detection and response. And the, the idea, at least that I propose anyway, is 
that you have raw telemetry, which is telling you about things that are happening in your environment, right? Mm -hmm. But not all of those are relevant to the detection goal that you specifically have. So let's say that you're trying to, I'm just, the one I used in the blog post is you're trying to detect malicious service creation, right? Well, in order to do that properly, you have to first be able to detect or identify all service creation. And if you can't identify all services that are created, then you, you kind of obviously have some sort of gap in your ability to detect malicious right. services. Um, and so there's- Correct. But then if you do that and you identify every service creation, but you don't know which one's malicious, yep. they're still not there. <laughs> yeah, and then, so yeah, the second component, so you have identification, which is all services, and then there's classification, which is how do I put those into buckets? And like, uh, you could, I, don't, I don't know what the proper words are because the words that I typically would use are benign and malicious, but like, what does malicious actually even mean? And like, are there- things that aren't malicious that you would want to classify. So there, there's like basically alert and don't alert might be the buckets that you classify them into. But yeah, so you, you still have to do that classification. And I what I find is a lot of a lot of people that we work with or even myself, uh, mm -hmm. I'm guilty of it, is you either focus too much on identification. And so you're like, I, I need to make sure that I can capture all service creation or you focus only on classification. classification. And, the, and, like, and so it's very rare for people to do both those things. Um, and do them well in a single I think, rule. I think part of the issue with classification is not knowing where to start in terms of the data set that's there. And so if we've identified that a data set might be potentially uh, noteworthy for us to look into, I think there's a middle aspect between identification and classification that's prioritiz prioritiz prioritization. And that's whenever so much context from the data attributes are applied back to that data set to say, hey, like this has a network event, this has a registry event, this would then, at that point, dependent on the, prior, the prioritization, like um, mathematical algorithm applied to the data set, so it could be automated, it would then put it higher in the priority list versus something else, which could then be password classification. I think classification mm -hmm. is a very scary concept because we try to automate classification too early. Whenever classification, in my head, and I personally believe this, is identifying what the intent behind an action is. And we've talked about this like a whole bunch, Jared, and with other guests. And mm -hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on this too, Anton, is if a service is created, that isn't necessarily malicious, right? Like that, that doesn't make it malicious. What is malicious? Okay, what are they wanting to do with the service there? So we then go look at the binary path that's, that's like with the service that was created. We then go look at to see if there's network connections applied to that, et cetera, et cetera. That is mm -hmm. what we do to identify uh, the intent, which then like specifies or helps you identify what classification is. But that probably to me, when I hear this type of logic, I usually think of like, okay, then what classification options? What are the choices? What are the what are the main? What's the menu? Option one, benign. This is a normal thing that happens every time somebody created a process. Uh, one process created another process, whatever. So this happens every day, thousands of times. So benign is kind of mostly crisp, at least in that like easy, benign, normal. Again, I would avoid normal because I know normal is a slippery, really slippery slope. So let's say benign. <laughs> and it's also clearly created by the attacker. Like, I don't know, known malware launched mm -hmm. a service. This is very much in the, in the benign Malibu. side, malicious side. Like these two sides are clear. So these are, but these are not fun, right? Like if, <laughs> if Windows makes a, make, creates a service during updates, benign, attacker does it malicious, but what's in between? Sometimes people like to have the middle category of suspicious, but then it becomes the trash can, right? You throw almost everything in there. Uh, a new application that you didn't install 
did it, but it wasn't the attacker, it was the user. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that goes into suspicious bucket. So if I have three choices, I would tend to overuse the middle bucket, of course. Uh, and I almost never know something that's in the clearly bad bucket, but I may reclassify something from the suspicious bucket to the bad bucket. And sometimes I would reclassify from suspicious bucket to the good bucket, right? But then what other buckets are there? Like, do I have three choices to classify? Or do I have more? Yep. Do I have things like, mm, kind of like unauthorized, but not malicious? User uh, installing software that's against the policy. That's not really suspicious that some companies happens a lot. Like at some companies, it happens never. But it's not, is this suspicious? Like, I don't know. There's probably another bucket, but what is this? Yeah, I, th I think, so you have a great hmm. blog post called On Threat Hunting or Threat Detection Uncertainty. Hmm. And I think what we're talking about is uncertainty, right? So the, um, the idea here is that we don't actually know the disposition of the event. So a service is created. And there's no literal way for us to know without, you know, with full certainty that it is either benign or malicious or authorized, unauthorized or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and so that's why we create this, you know, detection rule or classification mm -hmm. rule or algorithm, whatever we want to call it. And that is going to basically create some sort of score, right? And like whether we explicitly create a score or implicitly create a score, it, it doesn't really matter. But it's going to either alert or not alert. And that's based on some threshold that we've determined, right? And so like the threshold may be as simple as saying, um, if if the service was created by a process other than services.exe, then it mm -hmm. has reached a sufficient threshold to be deemed malicious, right? And that deemed becomes malicious. an alert. Yep. Um, by and the way, this a, uh, it's probably useful to have a quick detour here. Yeah. Like in, when I dealt with a lot of the user behavior analytics, uh, Yuba vendors and, and technologists, a lot of these people wanted to really break out of this alert, not alert. Mm -hmm. met met metaphor and they wanted to go give you a score and they give you like a little number between the zero and the hundred and the peculiar bit about this that's related to what you said is that some people i've met really loved it they said oh alert and not alert is so binary it's so yeah. so unclear what if i don't know and they loved it but the other half said okay so what is the threshold in your score at which i alert like do i wake people up at 3 a.m or not to me yeah. this is a very uh, like a physical world, like meat world decision. And I cannot use a score for that. So give me back my alerts. Yeah. And it's interesting how this friction still exists in the industry. Yeah. So the question is, is do you, so like the, the threshold is arbitrary, right? To some degree, right? And maybe you adjust yeah. it over time based on how you confirm or deny the truth. Um, but like maybe that threshold is aligned with your capacity to deal with alerts, right? Because like you have to be able to uh, respond to an alert in some way. And so you might be able to say, I can I can handle 10 alerts based on the amount of resources that I have. And so I'm going mm -hmm. to adjust the threshold to where the top 10 alerts are shown to me. Um, and then like the thing that you go into in the in the blog post is uh, one of the things that you can do to in, like decrease the amount of uncertainty is you can increase your capability or your ability to handle alerts, mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm. yep. kind of, yeah. And so like then you would be able to reduce the threshold because you never really know what the you can't you can't discern what the true threshold actually should true be. True threshold, yeah, exactly. Yep. Like, what's the right threshold that you have to have? Otherwise, you know, you lose business or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. That so. makes it fun. I mean, that makes it that makes it for a fun, you know, fun fun podcast fodder and definitely a fun, you know, occupation for the likes of well us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely.
Yeah, but then then like uh, one of the things that you run into is I think uh, UBA, for instance, uh, I'm I'm actually really interested in your thoughts on this, but uh, UBA seems to be something that a lot of immature organizations buy uh, to kind of give them something. I, I've heard people kind of have told me, oh, well, I have to have that because it gives me something. Um, and so then those are the types types of organizations that are going to be more like, just tell me yes or no. I don't want to like mess around with it because maybe they haven't gotten to the point as an organization mm-hmm. to where they're mature enough to kind of uh, tinker with that threshold and things like that. Um, and so like, I, I'm curious in your experiences, U, UEBA or UBA, is that more something that people go for when they're less mature or when they're more mature or does it not really, it's kind of ubiquitous across the board? Um, to me, this is a tougher question to answer than it seems because uh, there's certainly people who b- kind of buy it for the wrong reasons because mm-hmm. they sort of, again, I, I know the machine learning would have to come up somewhere in the conversation, but people sure. hear the cool buzzwords and they assume it would save them from whatever trouble they're having and it doesn't really matter what the troubles are. Uh, and they so a lot of immature buyers would buy it because it vaguely sounds better than rules to them. It's been it's it's promised to be lower maintenance in terms of the well rule writing, and it sounds like it's futuristic and possibly effective. So the low maturity buyer certainly fits into the bucket. But there are also people who kind of transcended what rules can do, and yeah. they maxed out the rule based detection and they're looking for something else and. Somebody shows up with ML and they say, okay, let's try that. So I do see the people who are trying to use it instead of rules. And these are low maturity organizations. Mm-hmm. But I also see people who buy them after they push the rules as far as they would go. And to me, these are enlightened buyers. Yeah. And there's both, right? I don't think it's either or. I think that both buckets exist. Gotcha. I I, can, I tend to agree with mm-hmm. that. I think there's... Uh... What, what I find is that if you're an immature organization, so you kind of you mentioned that um, it removes the burden potentially of having to write rules or maintain rules, but it potentially increases the burden of dealing with alerts because you might not have as much clear context yes. with the alert that's being produced. And so like you're just kind of like shifting burden from one responsibility to the other, but the burden doesn't actually decrease across the entire process. Correct. That's actually a good one. And I just another just the other day, I was arguing with somebody who uh, had this great idea. Why don't I have a SIM or some kind of detection tool? Doesn't even matter. That's a SIM. Don't tune it. Enable all the signatures. Turn it. Crank it all up to all the way to eleven, and then send all the alerts into a SOAR tool, and then have the playbooks to sort out the stuff. And I'm like, dude, you decide not to tune your SIM, but then you decided to put all the, t- all the kind of tuning sort of in the playbook design, how, aren't you just moving the labor from, like you're moving the labor right. Like you're not moving it left to tune in the detections. You're not tuning the detection. You're just like cranking it all up and then moving the tuning to, to the right. And I'm like, is this a good idea? We're sort of like supposed to shift left, but you like mm-hmm. do shift right. <laughs> and of course they hated me for this, but yeah. They just felt like it's more logical for them to deal with alerts rather than to deal with detection content. I don't know. I'm still befuddled by that, but I, I've seen it more than once. I, want, I wonder if there's like a... So I know in like PowerShell, so I, I do a lot of PowerShell coding. And one of the, the fundamental things is uh, filter left, right? So you always want to filter left yeah. because it's more performant, right? Um, but what I find is that if you're not really careful, if you, fil- if you filter something left, then you end up... Um, hiding it or making it mm-hmm. disappear. 
And then you end up yep. creating false negatives before you even have the chance to apply your Correct. core core logic. And so there is a, I understand from a performance perspective, shifting left, but also there is a danger, I guess, that's inherent in shifting left if you're not doing that with you know the right the right thought process, I guess. Correct. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this comes down to um, understanding the different type of detection strategies that are out there for us, mm-hmm. and which one best fits our environment at the current state that it's in, right? So, if like let's go through different like strategies there are. I mean, there's precise ones where we're looking at specific command line parameters, right, and it deals with a specific binary, or if we're looking for quote unquote suspicious binaries launching from PowerShell, for example. That's one strategy. It's pretty precise, yeah. right? Um, that's signature-based detection as well. Then we move up in the ranks, and that's where we start to widen that detection a little bit more. It's okay, let's let's look at technique-based type of detections where we're looking yep. for more of the core fundamental aspect of that attack. We're looking for that and then adding context where that's at, and then kind of go back to the UABA where the machine learning, everybody gets super hyped about. That's like way up here. That's a different strategy that's like supposed to help with like anomaly-based detections and things like that, mm-hmm. right? Well, I think there's a couple aspects that dive deep into these strategies. A, what type of telemetry um, or data is available to you as an environment, right? Also, B, what is the ability that your detection engineers or your investigation analysts are able to mm-hmm. handle um, either the detections or the alerts at what point, right? Because that's going to determine if you're a very small company, and you're not able to deal with a lot of alerts. I mean, the reality is the wider the scope of the detection, the more alert logic is going to come through. And so like, yes. say that that's typically what's going to happen. And so if you are pretty small, then you might want to adjust where your strategy might lie. Right. So I think as time has gone through, we, we kind of like try to determine what is the best strategy um, for detection overall in industry. And I think mm-hmm. one thing I've come to realization is, it's more of an environment central type of conversation. What is best for your environment as of where it Mm -hmm. sits now? Um, Because say if you have a vendor, it's giving you data and they alert, but you don't have the ability or the flexibility to create your own detections, then you need to deal with those rules as they, as they may be. Right. That might be a focus that you have then. But this makes it, this story probably is somewhat unpopular with vendors who sell boxes, like to sell, but basically products Mm -hmm. because if we like, as I as, as in, in another blog post that I think Jared mentioned when I said, talked about local context for detection, like I'm discovering the same things you're discovering that a lot of the best detections are written on site by people who own the site, like by 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 the people whose environment it is. But it's an unpopular message with the vendors, right? Like if I build products, I'm supposed to give you detections in the box, and some of the low to mid maturity clients kind of would push the vendor and say, vendor. Give me the detections. I don't want to do the work. If I wanted to do the work, I would have done it myself. But I'm paying you big money to give me detections. And you can talk to them about the nuance of detection and local context and like local knowledge and on, on in inside environment stuff. But they would be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. Give me detections. Mm-hmm. So like it's I don't know how to solve it. This has been tricky because if you are a service provider, you can do a lot of on-site stuff. But if you're a box seller, a product vendor, then it's you are sort of pushed into the corner of all detections are built in the lab, right? Yep. And then given to clients. And they have to have low false positives and everything like that, right? Correct, correct. And yet you're still kind of supposed to do, detect the threats that matter to me, to, to, mm-hmm. to the customer. There's uh, So there's, I think about 
the detection and response process has kind of five phases, collection, detection, triage, investigation, and remediation. You have to do all mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. And if you don't, then there was no point in doing it in the first place or you're going to fail. Um, and like when I think of a EDR, for instance, right? So like mm-hmm. uh, you, you buy an EDR, it's doing collection for you to some degree, mm-hmm. right? So it's producing raw events. Yeah. Um, and then it's doing detection for you as well. So like yeah. from and like I understand that there's different levels of maturity, right? And so like some some organizations can't do both. But I would say that in most cases, except for your probably most mature or maybe like your software oriented mm-hmm. organizations in the first place, aren't going yeah. to be able to pr- provide a collection capability themselves regardless, right? So the thing that like I value from vendors is the collection capability more so than the detection capability because if you give me the events and I you know let's say I trust that you're producing those in a in a robust way and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. I can build the detections I just need access to the raw telemetry um, but I, I think there's we kind of talked about this on Twitter a little bit there's almost like a even if the vendor knows the right answer they they can't just say here's the right answer take it because you know the consumer is kind of right all the time and it, they vote with their dollars and if they don't pay you then your right then answer the, the, doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. But you're right about the flow. <laughs> Obviously, the and I think that EDR, that the example you brought up, is kind of successful at least in in the market because I think they ultimately wanted to own, at least for some clients, all five of the boxes. They collect, mm. they detect, they kind of help you triage, they help you investigate by looking at other data. And to a much smaller extent, they can help you remediate, even though the last box is a little iffy. But to me, why EDR sucked so much money out of, say, SIM, out of other domains, is because in case of SIM, they couldn't do three out of five, really. But in case of EDR, they almost got to five out of five. And sort of we are in the kind of a product strategy discussion, it turns out. But, But to me, that's probably a good sign why EDR is succeeding because mm. you don't rely on third-party telemetry and you can, with some luck, close the loop at the end. Mm. At least that was my impression why EDR was, became a big deal. Yeah, yeah one that's thing, a, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go. Okay. One thing, that's, one thing I'm starting to realize when it comes to EDR telemetry is oftentimes when we're looking at a, a tech technique and we're starting to build off detections, mm. right, and we're doing the, the research phase and we're trying to see what type of optics are there for us, mm-hmm. we tend to, like, I'm a, I am ai like RPC a lot, so I'll use this as an example. <clears throat> With a lot of the petite potent stuff going on in Print Nightmare, there might not be a lot of quote-unquote fantastic RPC data for us in terms of telemetry from vendors, right? But there are some if we know how to manipulate the data, like network telemetry, um, mm-hmm. whether that comes from like a, like a Zeek or it comes from the host, like Sysmon, or if it comes mm-hmm. from like there's that 5156 on um, the Windows security events. We find ourselves oftentimes trying to nail down these optics and how we can look for it. And I want to I say two things. I think one, I find oftentimes that engineers want to find a one event fits all type of aspect where this one event is going to tell me everything I need to know about this activity mm-hmm. and I don't have to go from there. Where I think like we've kind of moved past that as an industry and we have to start joining multiple events together for context purposes. Mm-hmm. Yep. The next piece onto that is we often find ourselves asking, why doesn't the vendor collect X, Y, and Z or detect on this, this, and this, when oftentimes we're not utilizing the telemetry that we have to its full capacity as is. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, we might want to talk and have a conversation about development for this type of telemetry, but right now we also need to focus, I I guarantee you the majority of environments that are utilizing telemetry aren't using it to its full capacity. So there might be 
other aspects that we can dive deep and understand where this telemetry is coming from, how we can utilize it the best, and then how it fits the environment to help us come up with a more robust fashion for this detection. Yeah, but this is really tricky though for some for many organizations when, especially when the collection is ba- is charged per gigabyte, and mm-hmm. it's not it's not a jab at any particular vendor. It's just like a common uh, theme in the industry that you know if I'm a vendor, I incur a cost if I take more data. So I charge the cost to a client. So as a vendor, I would be motivating clients to collect more. Like I remember back in my log logic days many years ago, we really wanted people to collect all the logs. Because, well, we would sell more appliances, right? Uh, back then, it was appliances. But it's also kind of a right thing to say to a client, hey, collect more. But then if you're a vendor who charges them based on collection, you start to sound as if you're doing it for self-serving reasons. So I don't really know how to resolve this, except for, well, don't charge per gigabyte. Yep. But, but ultimately, it's tricky because telling people, well, okay, you probably are collecting enough. Let's do. Let's get you to use the telemetry better. Is, is a good message, but then what if we miss something? They still want to go back and collect, and then it's back to a debate of like, you're only saying this because you charge per gigabyte. No, you really need this telemetry. No, you're only saying it because you charge per gigabyte. And then it's like, yeah. how do you resolve this? Yeah, yeah I think I that, uh, one, of, one of our colleagues kind of refers to the charge per gigabyte model, like the text message model back in the day to where you used to have to mm-hmm. pay 10 cents a text message. And yep, now, yep, now yep. we just send SMSs like it's you know nobody's business, I guess, and that's mm-hmm. how we communicate with our friends and everything. Um, and so, like, I think you know, eventually people are going to start moving away from that potentially, but um, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Maybe not um, soon. Maybe we'll be old by that time. But yes, yeah, I think yeah, that it's sure. probably coming simply because otherwise, it's just a lot of messaging, a lot of story we have to tell people. Just like unravels. Well, yeah, or it, it, people assume corrupt motives. I, I mean, I remember one managed security provider that I dealt with in my in my analyst days kind of informally, they were always facing resistance from clients to add more sources because they charge per source. So whenever mm-hmm. they say, oh, you collected Windows data, now you have to collect DNS data. And the client is like, why do you want me to collect DNS data? Because you charge me another license? And every conversation was like that. Yeah. And it's hard to separate security merit for a collection from the economic merit for a vendor. So yeah. it feels very refreshing to work for somebody who doesn't charge per gigabyte, for yeah, sure. Yeah, you definitely. avoid this whole mess. Yeah, I find that uh, like as a consultant, I have no dog in the game as far as economic value of collecting mm-hmm. additional telemetry. So like for me, it's like, yeah, I mean, if I had a perfect world, I would collect everything and then I would use my analytic to be able to filter things down, right? So like uh, I do hear a lot of people that are kind of that have kind of the opinion that uh, you shouldn't just throw everything into your sim or your database or whatever you want to call it, um, because you know that's maybe not ideal. You should collect with a purpose, right? And I, I, I can't help but think that that's based on this economic incentive that that we're kind of talking about, right? So that that seems like something that they come to as in, uh, if it costs to ingest data, there it's a zero sum game to where. Mm-hmm. If you if you collect something that's not particularly important, then that means that maybe you can't collect something that is important later on. And so then they they have this idea that you need to be very precise about what you collect. But like in a pure non money perspective, like collecting right. more is probably a better thing in general. Correct. Yes. And this is this reminds me many years ago. I'm thinking 2013 probably. Um, I wrote something that was about output driven sim. It's basically defining like running your SIM so that you never collect anything that you don't want to write detections on or use cases. And 
there was a half of the people kind of liked it because they felt like back in the day when Sim was really not very scalable, you had to, uh, you couldn't just collect stuff. I think it was like even before before uh, the current text search and vendors became popular, uh, you kind of almost had to do it. But it was still a novel idea. Oh, mm. what do you mean? Like, I need to think before I collect? No, I just want to collect and then think. Today, you you can collect and then think. But then today, you're charged per gigabyte more often than before. So it's kind of strange how the journey kind of like went full circle. We started in the world where you just cannot collect everything because the tools would break. Then people started collecting more. And then vendors started charging them per gigabyte. And it's like, wait a second. Yeah, we can collect more. But... Who is paying for all the instances in, 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 in the cloud? Who is paying for all the servers? Well, that's us. Well, why do we collect all of it? So I don't know. This to me is another head scratcher because you're right. In theory, I want people to collect quote unquote everything. Mm-hmm. But then if I am asked to justify it based on the license, DHCP would burn one sixth of my vendor license, but DNS would burn one fiftieth. I'm going to collect DNS. What's more useful? I don't care. I don't have money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's... Definitely. Yeah, Luke Luke just brought up in, in our chat, he brought up a point that was uh, the reason why text messages became free was because Apple kind of disrupted the model with iMessage, which was not iMessage, you know, SMS, right? And so, yeah, maybe that's the solution is that uh, we get to the point to where one vendor comes in and kind of disrupts the pricing model. And then as people begin to go that direction, everybody else has to change in order to compete, basically. So, yep. Cool. Well, one, one cool topic I do want to have is I'm curious your thoughts on this, Anton, is... <clears throat> What are your thoughts on publicly releasing um, oh the boy. basis behind certain detections a vendor might have? So, mm-hmm. like last week, there was a there was a thing on Twitter where someone released, I think it was Elastic's signature based detections, um, mm-hmm. and like we often find the discussion caught up is why aren't we releasing more detections publicly? Why aren't we doing that for the environment? And I'm curious your I'm curious your thoughts about that whole subject in general. So I'm gonna use some kind of like a really old historical analogy that would make me sound really old and like stale and all that stuff. So go back to, I don't know, 2002, three, maybe, I don't know, when Snort was born. So Snort was born as an IDS with signatures that are almost always open. Like nobody's hiding their Snort signatures. Well, maybe some vendors do, but ultimately Snort and Snort derived tools showed signatures. But I don't know, another really ancient analogy, ISS and a few other vendors never showed signatures. And this was a big fight 20 friggin' years ago. And guess what fight are we going to have now? The same. <laughs> yep. Should we release idea signatures? Let's go take a time machine straight to 2002. You know, Marty writes Snort. Snort has open signature format. Oh my God, they're showing idea signatures. Wouldn't attackers know? And then suddenly go back, take time machine back. 2021. Oh, they released a search string to look for this threat. How can they do it? <laughs> it's kind of fascinating how we actually don't know what the right answer is. Like, you you think the open would win over time, but the revealing your detection, your blue team tradecraft to an attacker seem to still be a concern sometimes, right? I don't know. I my Deep in my heart, after watching all these, like, culture of wars in our industry, I still feel like open is better because the risk of spooking an attacker just because somebody released a signature feels low. And I am immediately thinking of some exceptions to that. For example, if you have some kind of a truly, like a you have a zero day of detection, you have like a true 
a novel technique for detecting something that uses the same telemetry in a way that's not thinkable to anybody. Oh my God, I coined the concept of a defender zero day. So maybe I wouldn't release it. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe the only way you detect the attacker is because somebody told you about their infrastructure and you just typed an IP address into your into a detection tool and you detected them because you knew in advance where they would come from. Like maybe your, your threat and tell is so good. Then maybe you wouldn't leak it. So to me, I think of keeping detection secret as an exception and that absolutely they do exist. But, but to me, the default is open. This is my stance. Feel free to beat up on me. And I'm, I'm pretty sure when we launch the episode, people would beat up on me more yeah. on social media. But uh, this is what I would feel. Like I would feel open by default, closed by exception. Yeah, I ask, I ask because I've been very conflicted. I've been asking myself this question quite a bit yeah. the past couple of weeks. And the, the issue is I see an argument to be made to where if we default open, that would better help um, specifically organizations that don't have the bandwidth to create and go through the whole detection re- engineering process in terms of research, because mm-hmm. not everybody mm-hmm. has R&D, right? Not everyone has threat research, and um, the detection engineers are often also handling alerts along mm-hmm. with yes. all of that. So that is mm-hmm. the default open, and I understand that concept. However, there's another piece of me that understands why um, it wouldn't be default open, and I think there's a big push for blue teams and detections to share their, I don't want to say, I don't want to say secrets, but let's just use that word for um, giggles, I guess their mm-hmm. secrets, but we have red team over here releasing. And this, this is going to be very a controversial topic. I know um, okay. releasing open source tooling, which is, and I think is perfectly fine because it, I think mm-hmm. open source tooling actually enables detection to an extent, but they release it without any detection um, uh, kind of thoughts right. or support, practices. Support, auxiliary, like appendix. Like, it's, like, it, the question no is, is like, what's your intent What's your intent on both ends of releasing the detection strategies and what's your intent on releasing a new, uh, a new attack, right? And I think like that is where we're kind of at a tug of war hmm. because it's like, I'm gonna, I want you to share me all of your stuff by the way, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing over here. And I think it's mm-hmm. a two-way street oftentimes. I think that's why we're kind of at a dead end when it comes to I, that. I, I right. feel and like that's why a lot of ISACs failed in early days, right? Because people assumed great stuff would come to them, but none of their stuff would go up to the ISAC, right? Like that's, again, another dated analogy, but still. Mm. Oh, sorry, I interrupted Jerry. Oh, no, no, no worries. No worries. But that, that's a good point, too, is uh, it's a send and receive kind of relationship for an ISAC, for instance. But yeah, the... Uh, the pessimist in me kind of thinks that mm-hmm. one of one of the reasons why people tend to think that um, if you release detections, they're going to be bypassed is because they're not very robust detections in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's there's an issue of if I'm what what we run into as consultants a lot is our customers will basically outsource their detection capability to a vendor, right? An EDR mm-hmm. vendor, let's say. Um, yep. And then when they you know we they the the vendor will say, hey, we detect credential dumping. And it's like, okay, well, can you show us the rule for how you derive that? And they're like, no, 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 that's proprietary, right? And maybe they do think that there's some sort of competitive advantage to it. However, like we, we've seen rules that don't do a good job at their stated goal. And so how can yeah. I, as a, as a consumer, trust that you are actually doing the, the thing that you are proposing to do unless I can validate it? And it's almost like the cryptography argument, which is yeah. like the more open it is, the more people mm-hmm. are able to pick at it, and then the more robust it's going to become over time. 
but maybe we can. So this to me is makes this to me makes sense, and this to me is an interesting is goes conversation goes differently with a low maturity client who may mm-hmm. not have the skills to validate it even if you open it to them. Sure. But like, let's just for giggles figure out like what are the top three reasons not to release detections. Like, if it would make the attacker change and you would miss them, right? But I think to me the counter argument to this kind of argument is of course what you just said. Don't write bad detections. If somebody is I'm going to use a naive example, and I'm, I'm admitting that it's a naive example. It just makes the point really nicely. I I have credit cards, and somebody's trying to steal them. I'm going to detect card exfiltration. Well, guess what? You came to steal cards. You're going to exfil cards. Like, if I tell you that I'm detecting cards exfiltration, you're not going to not exfiltrate cards because that's your goal. And again, you I, if I tell you that I'm only looking at email and I'm not looking at Dropbox... Of course, you're going to upload them to Dropbox, and then I'm an idiot. But mm-hmm. ultimately, if my detection is to look for cards and I do a good job of it, but that's your goal, it doesn't matter that I told you. You Correct. still need the cards. I'm still watching for cards. There's no loss to me as a defender. And so, But if your detection is an IP address, and I'm an attacker, and they say, ah, they got part, this part of my infrastructure is in their lists. I'm going to move to the other part of my infrastructure. And of course, I ruined the game for the defender. But what are other possible reasons to not reveal the detections? Yep. Yeah. Apart well, from the attacker changing. To kind of go on the same direction, that's mm-hmm. when we talk about like uh, tools being released. If you focus mm-hmm. your detections on the tool, that's a marginal increase in your overall detection capability because tools are relatively simple to change. And so, like that, that, that just kind of demonstrates the point is focus. If if somebody just has to change a tool and they still do the same thing, like service creation mm-hmm. for lateral movement, for instance then like yep. detecting the tool is the wrong approach in the first place, right? Because the, the tool is inherently superficial. That's like the whole point of a tool is to superficialize the overall like kind of attack technique. Um, trying to think of other, I, I'm thinking of all the solutions and I, I'm trying to think of like the other problems that come with opening up. So like one problem is that you would, you would if somebody knew that you were trying to detect X, they would, potentially choose to do Y instead, mm-hmm. right? And that, that kind of depends on w- what level of abstraction what X, X is. is. Also. Yeah, if X yeah. is Xfil and I have a robust Xfil detection, then they need to get stuff out. So, but but it's, it's I guess, it's kind of a high-level view. Again, if I say I detect encrypted traffic by doing man in the middle, then of course you're doing your own encryption as an attacker. And then my, my, uh, my, my man in the middle would fail. So... I think from that point of view, there is risks. There are risks, right? Uh, but like, maybe they're overblown. Maybe people are afraid to share anything rather yeah. than stuff that would truly ruin ruin the defender game. I don't know. I th- this is I tricky. Think, I think. I think one thing, and after this point, I think Luke had something to say. <clears throat> I think a part of it is um, the good thing about releasing detections is it kind of pushes us as defenders to. Um, overlap um, our detection strategies inside of our environment, right? It kind of pushes us that way because one of the biggest fears as detection engineers is like, oh, am I stupid, right? Because I didn't detect X. And I think that often comes up where it's like, well, no, it doesn't necessarily make you stupid. You just use a different strategy to detect X. Now there's multiple, there's like three or four of the strategies you could utilize to kind of overlap, to kind of um, succumb to that like bypass or like assumption-based area, right? Luke, what, I think you had something to add onto this. 
Yeah, just uh, kind of a hot take. And you said they were going to come after you and the on Twitter <laughs> for what you said. They might come after me for this too. I think it matters who you are when it comes to releasing this detection. I think uh, or detections in general. I think some people kind of over think the risk that they bring upon themselves by releasing a detection and I think it scales with the organization so I think that releasing detections publicly helps the smaller fish who may not be able to develop themselves but they also aren't able to validate themselves so they're kind of taking it at its face value and then as you scale up uh, Microsoft probably doesn't want to release their detections because they're highly targeted right but like random um, MSSP consultant number four if he like throws out his detection, like maybe there's an inflated sense that they're going to be attacked when no one's actually really targeting them. So I think it matters like with that concern who you are. If you're some random little company that has a, a zealous detection engineer that just wants to like talk about stuff on Twitter and release it, attack surface probably not that high. Microsoft might be. Yeah, I think one thing I just kind of thought of randomly was I wonder if like the reason why oftentimes vendors don't release their detection logic is because it might unravel or unveil how they're able to collect that telemetry, right? Which I think, which I could understand why vendors would not want to release that because it would give insight as to how they're collecting that data, which is then a bigger issue is if I, I have a blog post out on um, evasion techniques and classifications. And one of those is if a sensor isn't collecting that data, then you can't ultimately see it. Well, if you, unravel and show how you're detecting something then an attacker could potentially find a way to bypass the sensor altogether because it just can't collect right, that type the of telemetry right they would not bypass the detection they wouldn't just bypass the rule they would derive what you're sensing and it would bypass the sensor of Precisely. course yeah no yeah. that that's where i mean i think there would be this me falls into the bucket of yeah that's probably a legit risk if if i would reveal my collection infrastructure by by sharing what i detect but to me if if I collect Zeek metadata and I use Zeek metadata to detect something, then it's kind of like pretty obvious what I do. I don't have any like unique bespoke telemetry sources. If I do, then I'd, I'd probably be in a different bucket. It's almost like this is my kind of like a zero day argument. If I have a completely novel detection technique uh, that the attacker can change, like remember this whole Iranian keyboard thing, right? I, like uh, the, uh, the the reason this Iranian keyboard example really struck me as kind of nice uh, was that it's a cool technique, but at the same time, it's very clear that it's burned now. Like if I am the whatever kitty, uh, kitten something, blah, 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 actor, I would probably go to my keyboard and change it from Iranian to whatever, Russian, uh, because this detection technique clearly burned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so that's actually... So I find a great example of a technique that really should not have been revealed, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I guess I was going towards the idea of like detection through obscurity. So there, there is an argument that simply not knowing what you're detecting is potentially a good thing. But the idea also is that that's not very robust. And if your whole, if your whole detection program is built on the other side, not knowing how you're doing it, then you're, it's going to break down at some point, right? Correct, and they would, and also I would say that the the addendum to this is that there probably are detections that you should keep secret, but there are detections that you are keeping secret for no good reason, and you can really help defenders by revealing them, and yeah. it would not make the attacker to change because either they cannot because it's in front of their goal, or because it would be really hard. So it's like back to the Bianco's pyramid, right? If you reveal something cool, 
at the top, then can they really adopt? Who knows? Yeah. Maybe not. But then yeah. the other point somebody made about the telemetry, like if you re if you if revealing detections would reveal what telemetry you collect and that is unique in some way, then also maybe don't reveal. Yeah. But I mean, to me, there's also a less ethical argument. I think some vendors are afraid of sharing detections because they know they're unscrupulous vendors, possibly in other countries, who would just steal detections. Just like people steal virus total uh, detections and in violation of the license and say, oh, yeah, VT detected, we would raise a flag. So uh, there are less ethical vendors out there. I'm, o I'm always curious about that because that, that is something that like... I kind of worry about with my work as well. So like I'm not immune to it. But then like the way that I talk to myself about that is if somebody is still like building a service off of stolen detections um, and then somebody is seeking out that that vendor, like was was that customer even in your even your target audience in the first place, potentially? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. probably not. I mean, maybe a regional vendor in some region where you don't plan to sell your services. Yeah, yeah that to me is a separate story. Yeah, I, I don't know how to figure that out for sure. But that's yeah. kind of what I tell myself sometimes whenever I'm feeling like, hey, maybe I want to like keep this to myself to provide to my customers. It's like, well, a lot of the people that are going to benefit from this probably aren't my target demographic of customers anyway. So um, I'm not really losing potential sales or anything like that. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I, I think we've reached the time that uh, you had allotted for the for the podcast, but we, we really appreciate uh, you coming on. We had some really good conversation. It's always nice to have somebody that uh, has thought through and ex I mean, you just you pulled out some uh, some examples from two th what 2002. I think Johnny and Luke were <laughs> yes, that's right. five, Sorry, five and yes. six, five and six years <laughs> old when that you mentioned 2013. You mentioned oh 2013 God. and I'm like, I don't you know. 2013, and I'm like, no, dang, I, I wasn't even I'm graduated old. from high school then. Dang. No, John, Johnny might I'm not have ever sure even used. I'm pretty sure you're a hacker in high school, so it's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, Johnny okay, was still no, in the womb in that example. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's. I mean, you you bring some insight that's just so valuable, and it's always. I think one of the the really cool things about this conversation is that uh, I if we learned one thing, we learned that there's probably not uh, one answer on either side. It's not yes or no. It's not A or B. Mm -hmm. But it's it depends, right? And so like, it's valuable to be able to have that conversation and talk about some of the nuance. And that's, that's, I mean, to be honest, that's why we started the, the podcast in the first place, because we had numerous interactions on Twitter where you're limited in the amount of characters you can use. Mm -hmm. And somebody would say, oh, well, I would tell you this, but it's just really not a conversation for Twitter. And it's like, okay, well, what if we just do a podcast and we could talk about the nuance and all the different considerations that somebody should have? And I think this, this conversation really kind of hit that goal for me anyway. Um, and so I just want to thank you for giving us your time and look forward to chatting in the future and kind of continuing the conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.